as part of our thinking about sharing insight dialogue with others and even as part of our own process of you know maturing in the practice deepening ripening the practice ourselves it can be helpful to understand um, some of the if you will components of the practice what makes insight dialogue insight dialogue and some uh, thoughts that have emerged uh, as to why it's so powerful that could provide perhaps some basis for our going forward together. So I'll share uh, what I refer to as the three bases of insight dialogue. And a lot of what I'm going to say is already familiar to you because it's inherent in the practice. But teasing it out this way, uh, I think will give us a handle on it, um, both in our training and in our thinking about where do I need to work to deepen my own capacity. The three bases are very simply the meditative qualities of the mind, the Dhamma or the wisdom base, and relationship itself. And these three uh, work together in pairs with each other and all three come together in the practice in such a way that it seems to me uh, helps understand, at least I could say it helps me understand, and I, it seems to be helpful for others, why is this practice so strikingly, surprisingly effective for people? Something, uh, it's a question I've been asking from the beginning upon stumbling which is really all I did is stumble upon this, uh, what started out as just the power of uh, practicing mindfulness in relationship based on my Vipassana background and someone I was teaching and we got together and explored dialogue together and there we were exploring dialogue and sort of practicing Vipassana. It was, oh my God, that's amazing. And then following the, the fragrance of that flower all these years, um, then also revealed over time, as uh, I introduced specifically the wisdom teachings within the practice and, and a whole other layer of, of efficacy revealed itself. So I present this as not truth, but as a way of understanding things, uh, a structure for conceptualizing and talking about, and maybe even inspiring a little bit. The basic notion is that taken alone, each one of these three components of the meditative qualities, the wisdom, and the relationship is very powerful very powerful force in our lives, or can be. 
just to tease that out a little bit, if you develop any particular meditative quality, and I take as my reference point sort of the gold standard of meditative qualities of the mind is the Buddha's teachings on the seven factors of awakening. And so if you take any one of those and develop it to a high degree, it will have some salutary effect, some uh, freeing effect. The most obvious in our culture right now, of course, is mindfulness. That's one of seven factors of awakening. Um, And it's largely taught in isolation without knowledge of the other seven factors and of the context from which it comes. And even so, it's extremely effective for people. Very, very powerful in helping people to recognize where their minds are confused, where their minds are busy, um, the root causes, at least to the extent that they're um, able to see them, of feelings of stress and uh, illness and so on. Well, you could say the same for, for example, concentration. If you just develop concentration, another one of the seven factors of awakening, that alone will have some effect, possibly very deep. So within the seven factors of awakening, taken together and brought into balance, the power of the mind to see things as they actually are, without the benefit of formal dhamma or without the benefit of the power of relationship in and of itself those med- the, the, that collection of meditative qualities will uh, um, go a long ways towards uh, uh, conducing to insight that frees. And The same is true with a somewhat different tonality for wisdom. Now my benchmark for wisdom happens to be the Buddha Dhamma, the the original core teachings of the Buddha from the Sutta tradition. Uh, For those to whom this distinction is meaningful, I don't enfold within that the, the Theravada commentarial tradition. I'm just talking about going back to the root sources of as close as we can get, which of course is always flawed, um, but it's quite good also, and say, okay, that's the benchmark. When I say wisdom, that's what I'm talking about. And we'll talk about whether or not that opens out to other wisdom traditions in a minute. So let's just table that for now. So. Basically, the way that I've um, made sense of that for myself is that we're talking about what is the nature of the human situation. That's a a piece of wisdom. That's a core piece of wisdom. And what is the structure and the function of the body-mind? How does it work in such a way that one can skillfully understand the, if you will, the, the depth psychology of that drew from the Buddha's insights. 
And then, of course, what is the method that leads to the wholesome? So particular practices and so on and so forth. All of that. Now, if you take any given piece of that root wisdom, and if it's the right piece for you at the right time, even without meditative development, even without the power of relationship, that piece of wisdom can free something in your heart to understand something and just think about it and watch it in your life as best as you're able, even without formal practice, something like impermanence. If you really pay attention to it and immerse yourself in that one little kernel of wisdom, it will change you for sure. The same would be true of let's say, suffering and the end of suffering without even knowing the totality of the Dhamma that's unfolded in that. But you say, how is there suffering now? Right? Or the nature of self and non-self, not-self. Or the thirst, hunger, craving, tanha. <clears throat> or perhaps this one piece of, um, let's say, the hindrances or the hindrances in relationship to the factors of awakening. You know, you can take any number of these pieces and if you really drop down into them and you immerse yourself, even in thinking about them, even without formal meditative development and without the support of relationship, this, these wisdom uh, uh, seeds can deeply, deeply change you and free your heart. And the same is true in a, with a very significant twist of relationship. Because we're intrinsically relational beings, highly sensitive, and profoundly influenced by our being with others. Relationships affect us enormously and have just a, uh, they like amplify everything they touch. So if there's some tendency towards anger, obviously that can be amplified in the wrong circumstances. If there's a tendency towards kindness, if there's a tendency towards greed, if there's a tendency towards lust, if there's a t any of these things can be amplified in human encounter. But if we look more generally, at the actual life of any human being, we can see the in, I would say, strong or perhaps even intense effect of relationships on that person's life, on my life, on your life. We look around in our culture and we see the impacts in the way of hospitals where people care for each other is all relational. That's not just one person off doing their thing. That's people serving people, the whole profession of psychotherapy. Uh, the fact of sociality and people working to get stuff done together, sort of the competition and all of that comes in, but so does the wish to um, be seen and to accomplish something and to be something in the world is all relational, pushing us and driving us 
to getting done both great things and terrible things. The depths of compassion, the depths of love, the infant-child bonding, all of these things are intrinsically powerful. And likewise, of course, murder and rape and war and all the really, really painful uh, moments that arise out of unskillful relational encounter. Because these tangles can go either way, either way. So looking then at how these three bases of insight dialogue, meditative qualities of the mind, wisdom, and relationship work in pairs. The classical pair, of course, in Buddhism is the meditative qualities of the mind and the Dhamma. That's where you see sort of mainstream understanding of Buddhist practice. And when it's skillfully done, it's stunningly, stunningly beautiful and really effective. You go on retreat, you have the guidance of the Dhamma, you have the depth of practice, the, the, the practice deepens the understanding of Dhamma, the Dhamma deepens the practice until you get you know, access to liberating insight. But throughout our lives, these two can work together, where you know, the development of mindfulness, the development of energy, joy, equanimity, can combine with a kind of a self-guided, or sometimes you'll have input from a teacher or something, but that's already getting relational, so in a way that's cheating. You have some kind of uh, guidance of the Dhamma in your life and you, the guidance of your meditative qualities, and that's also moving, not just in formal retreat, but it's moving through the totality of your experience. So those two synergize each other. They deepen each other. So if we take relationship and look at the, rela- you know, uh, putting the pair of, let's say, relationship plus meditative qualities of the mind, there you have, let's say, how does mindfulness develop and become even brighter with two reminding each other? How does concentration deepen when we engage each other in inquiry, when we engage each other in remaining present in the moment? How do the qualities of energy and the qualities of tranquility support when there's this resting in sort of the inherent loving kindness and compassion that arises as the mind becomes still and available? And how does that then settle more deeply, the concentrated mind? So how does the the settling and the mindfulness and the joy and the equanimity deepen relationship, the way it gets clear when all that would separate us because the mind is not so self-obsessed and stirred. As we get clear, we come close. You have all experienced this in your insight dialogue retreats. That's the meditative qualities of the mind deepening the relational experience, right? And look at the other way, the way the relational experience deepens the meditative qualities of the mind. 
which I just mentioned, like mindfulness or concentration and so on, growing in this between, in this shared reminding, this shared effort, right? So we see that synergy as they deepen each other, they grow together. And let's look at relationship and wisdom. Again, there's something here that's classic, people talking together to understand something. It's basic. It's really basic. And it's not just understanding with the intellect. When we talk together, our own processes of, of sensing into what we know, of feeling into what we know in order to express it, even before you've told me anything, I've already taken some steps forward in my understanding that I didn't know I knew. Right? I've actually had to clarify my thinking in order to speak it. So the relational fact is enhancing the wisdom. And the fact, for example, that you do understand some things I don't, and you shed light on it. So it's the Kalyanamita, the spiritual friend, the teacher. These are all relation, classic you know, relationships. Uh, brother monks and sister nuns and monks and nuns are a, a learning community as well as a, an ethical morality community. They talk about, I mean, un, un, ideally, if they're functional, they're steeped in Dhamma all the time. So that's a kind of an extreme but very beautiful, inspiring example. So that kind of uh, com learning community would, would uh, synthesize some of that the way relationship supports wisdom. Now, what about wisdom supporting relationship? Well, as I uh, investigate, let's say, my hunger, my thirst, and I'm examining the thirst, let's say, to, um, for pleasure, and I'm with you, and I can perhaps see it brought out of me in a way that I didn't even know it was there. Oh my God, you know, look at this. This is kind of embarrassing, but this is what's happening, right? And I didn't see it because it was well suppressed, let's say, in my traditional silent practice. I didn't see how much I wanted you to see me or how much I was after either not only relational pleasure, but I might explore and examine my other hungers for pleasure in talking to you. And you might tell me some of yours that I now see some I had I didn't even know I had. It's like, wow, yeah, I'm totally addicted to breakfast, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, so the relational quality, the fact of relationship is deepening the wisdom. And the wisdom is deepening the relationship because I now have a guide that is uh, pointing to where the resistances are. I have this liberating fact of wisdom is kind of releasing from me those layers that keep me separate from you, those notions I have, those views I have that lead to self-obsession are beginning to melt. And so the relationship actually becomes more profound and uh, uh, closer. So we can see how all of these different pieces synergize. In Inside Dialogue, all three are working together. And the practice includes the uh, 
movement towards balance and harmony and depth in all three. So it's at the point of overlap that Insight Dialogue uniquely, not unique in all the world, but it, it, this is the place, this is the place where Insight Dialogue lives. That's where it springs to life. And without any one of them, you have something that could be very wonderful and beautiful, but it's not fully insight dialogue. It could be an extraction of insight dialogue. Um, so, for example, if you look at the relationship, the overlap, this purple area, I'll, I'm not handing this out to you yet. I have copies for you because you'll just sit there and read it and you won't listen to me. And that's really boring for me. I, I get distracted. So that place of overlap between the meditative qualities and the relationship, this place that's purple but not brown, right? There's all kinds of practices that do that. A lot of them are sort of like, you know, just like gazing, meditative gazing. Without the wisdom, you'll have some great experience. And that's that, you know. You'll, you may be able to apply it to some other benefit or something. But without the leading of wisdom that makes it liberative, it can be beautiful, wonderful healing. You know, healing of, for those who are psychologically oriented, of broken attachments or, you know, dysfunctional attachment patterns psychologically. All kinds of great stuff can happen including ease, including deepening concentration. But without the wisdom, where is it going? You can feel the barrenness. I can, as I speak it, I can feel the barrenness of that. There's still pleasure, plenty of pleasure, right? But it's, it's barren of actual spiritual traction. This intersection between the meditative qualities and the wisdom, the Dhamma. Well, certainly you have good study groups and you know, you have uh, a lot of, you, you can have a lot of uh, excitement or a lot of depth in your um, meditation practice. And you can also have really, really profound insight at that intersection. Because remember, that's the classical, classical Dhamma right there. I mean, that's, you know, that's great. However, when you bring relationship to it, s several things appear to happen, one of which is an acceleration of the process of developing the meditative qualities. Another is an acceleration of the understanding of the Dhamma, the cognitive understanding. But much more important is a deep embodiment of the wisdom because it's showing up and it's manifesting and it's ripening in the relational process. So it has this um, kind of reality to it. I can't tell you how many people come to my retreats 
longtime practitioners and so on, who go away not so much with, wow, insight dialogue is, you know, my practice or something. What they leave, the main comment I get from many, many people is, the Dhamma has come alive. The teachings are living for me now. And these are people who've been studying and immersed in this, these teachings for 10, 20, 30 years. Something gets real in this practice. And that, I suggest, comes out of the relational living of it. Um, there's probably some effect of how the Dhamma is taught in Insight Dialogue, like the, you know, the particular ways that it's uh, framed as real, you know, Re-in- uh, not reinterpreted, but the interpretation is offered in such a way that you can swallow it, you can drink it, you can feel it. Um, and likewise, if you have the uh, relationship and wisdom piece together, here you can have like a, something like a study group or something like that, but without the meditative element, it's, it's never going to drop down. Right? You have to have the meditative element. And there are plenty of discussion groups that would fit that model that would be beautiful, that would be great, but that wouldn't realize the, the, the potential without, all, you know, without the meditative qualities to drop that wisdom down and make it really deep. And in fact, to enhance the relational experience as that happens. So, um, in order to think about this myself, I already had for the meditative basis, the, the base of meditation qualities, the seven factors of awakening. The Buddha did that work for me, right? For the wisdom basis, as I told you, I thought deeply about this and arrived at what I still have to admit is an arbitrary condensation of what do I mean by wisdom. And that's where I said, you know, the, the human situation, the human dilemma, if you will, the structure of the organism, the function of the organism, and the method, right? But that may or may not be helpful. For me, it's helpful, but it may not be for others. I don't know. And then I also then was asking, well, what are the relational qualities that need to be in place and balanced for the awakening to quicken? And so I proposed the relational factors of awakening. And those are, you know, the four Brahma Viharas, metta, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. And then I put mindfulness in a second time. That's provisional, but it has been there. Spaciousness, because that's a quality of mind that is really critical to the meditative, to the meditation entering the between. And then the mutuality of uh, trust, mutuality of respect, and mutuality of um, authenticity. And finally, the shared intention, that the two or more meditators who are coming together actually have their minds headed in a similar direction. 
So like the factors of, like the traditional factors of awakening, not all of these have to be perfectly strong and at their peak to have any benefit. You know, that's, it's a matter of bringing them up, balancing them, and when they all get strong, you have this particularly effective practice. Um, so, I think that that's probably a good place to stop for now. And then maybe we could see if there's um, any uh, questions or any conversation about this. Now I'll hand this out and you could look it over and we'll talk about it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.